This is St. Peter's Sunday Morning Bible Group, and I'm Pastor Adam. Each week, we record our teaching time to aid you in your discipleship and to help create a resilient faith that is able to respond to the changing landscape of culture and life with the fullness of grace and truth. And hey, if you happen to live in the Columbus area, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. To plan your visit, head over to our website at stpeterscolumbus.org. That's stpeterscolumbus.org. Here is this week's Sunday Morning Bible Group. Join me in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we gather on this cold morning, it's warm in here because your people are here experiencing your love, sharing that with one another, and opening up your word. Lord, as we talk about this subject that's uh, very emotional, uh, there's some confusion, there's some, some mystery to it, we just ask that you would just be with us. Open our ears to hear what you would say, open our hearts to, to follow that, Lord, and help us in all of our lives to use our hands and feet to share that love of Jesus with others. We have a great gift, Lord, we need to share it with us. We pray this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. One thing that popped up, I heard a few people uh, last week say in, in, in our, our Connect Group training, we've never been taught that. I want to back up that statement and say, I worked for 29 and a half years with Mark Tyke. I've been here 30 years. Mark and I have always taught this. We maybe have not been as specific about some details, and that's usually because the Bible has a lot of questions. But I've heard hundreds of funerals that Mark has done, and he talks about the hope of eternal life, the bodily resurrection of being with Jesus forever. In our Bible investigation class, our confirmation class, we have taught this. We maybe have not been as specific, and that's one of the reasons that we're doing this series on Sunday morning in the Connect Groups in the sermons, because in recent years, many denominations, not just us, have realized that we have a lot of Christians that still think the way that we see pictures portrayed in culture, that it's sitting on a cloud playing a harp forever. And we want to make sure we back up and say, that's not what it is. All right? We don't know exactly what it is. We can't even imagine what it is because we're so used to this life. We're so used to the way things are now. Just even to think about what is eternity? I can't even imagine eternity because I'm so used to, I get up at 6 in the morning, go to bed at 10 at night, another year passes, we have a birthday. We're used to the pattern. And at the end of the world, that pattern is going to change. We can't understand it. Um, but we can trust that God is in charge. And for those of us that believe him, it's going to be better than anything we can imagine. I want to get back to another picture. And this is another thing that gets confusing for people. It's a cultural thing. And I'm going to put in a shameless plug for the next time I do a reading through the Bible or an understanding the Bible uh, class. Some of the references in the Bible have a better understanding if you understand the culture of that time. All right? God's word doesn't change. But the culture that he's talking to at a certain time may hear things in a different way, and we have to understand how we did that. The prime example for what we're talking about is when we talk about the heavens. And when we talk about heaven, singular, and heavens, plural. And I think this is where a lot of people get confused as they're reading the Bible. If you think about Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Why is there a plural there? All right? And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, not surprisingly, bookends, 
and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He's not talking about the heaven where he exists. That's consistent, God, where God is. Now again, we can't understand exactly what that is. But we know that right now where God is is called heaven. With maybe a capital H would help us understand it. But looking at the Bible, the best thing that we can use to understand it is the Jewish people had an understanding of three levels of heaven. Now, our Mormon friends have twisted this around and said that there's three levels in heaven. But if you really look at what the Bible says, there are three levels of heaven in terms of their experience. And so here's where we could say, for example, in the book of the Psalms, the heavens are telling the glory of God. What are they talking about? What did David say when the heavens are declaring? The first level of heaven is the atmosphere. God is speaking to a pre-scientific culture. In our society, would he have said God created the atmosphere instead of the heaven, the first heaven? The second heaven is the universe, the stars above us, the stars and planets. So the first and second heaven are creation. And that's what the new heavens at the end of time will be when the judgment day comes God will restore creation and maybe it's better to think about instead of the new heavens and the new earth to say the new creation God will recreate creation the way it was supposed to have been and so maybe the best way for us to understand what eternity would be like is to understand what would the garden of Eden have been like people worked people had animals people had conversations with each other but most importantly they had conversations with God as God came down in the cool of the evening and walked with Adam and Eve heaven with a capital H is when we are with God in in a broad sense it's whenever we're with God so every Sunday morning we experience a little slice of heaven right as we come into his sanctuary and sing songs of praise and we're with his people we're experiencing heaven here on earth it's a little taste. That doesn't mean that when I'm up in heaven, it's going to be a lifelong church service. But I will be with God, and I'll enjoy that time together. So that third level of heaven is wherever God is. At the end of time, God will be with us in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will be in capital H, heaven, paradise, forever with him. So that kind of gives you maybe a little bit of a better handle on it. Um, for those of you that kind of go, well, we were never taught this. Yes, you were. We just probably didn't get as clear, maybe, as we should have. All right. Are there other questions before we move on that anybody wants to throw out now? All right. I'm going to invite up two of my friends, Molly Jenkins and Amy Dager, uh, connected to St. Peter's, but also connected to hospice. Uh, they have been nurses. I think they're both behind the scenes now. Amy, are you behind the scenes too all right but they've both been nurses i want to have them come up and talk to us about what hospice does and how hospice helps those that are dying to die well hello <laughs> we're usually behind the scenes so <laughs> this is just a little intimidating but i'm so happy to be here and thank you for having us because um, i know with molly and i both we like explaining what hospice does without a scary sort of connotation to it and what it you know there's so many preconceptions about it you hear hospice and you think you know all about dying when really it's about living and about the end of your life and how you want to live it um, we're going to introduce ourselves and then just answer some questions that George has kind of given to us and then if you guys have any questions we'll be happy to kind of explain things or answer them um, as he said my name is Amy Dager um, I'm a member of St. Peter's 
I've been with hospice um, 10 years. I was started out as a um, case manager, which makes visits in the home and the nursing homes. Um, I then went to a float position. I was a manager of the IPF for a year, decided I didn't like management, so then I went back to the case management. Um, I got into hospice because my dad was on hospice. I had been a nurse for 20 years, and then my dad got bladder cancer and just really realized what all hospice did for our family and for dad. And so it wasn't immediately, but a couple years later, I, um, there was a position open and I just felt a calling. And I've been with them ever since and you know, just feel a real passion for it. Um, and that's about me. I'll let Molly say. And I'm Molly Jenkins, and I've never spoken to, into a microphone before, and it seems really loud to me, so if somebody just wants to tell me to quiet down, I will, or if you can't hear me, I'll speak up. Um, I've been with hospice for 15 years, and a variety of positions also. I'm case managed out in the patient's homes. I've worked in the inpatient facility, which is located next to the hospital. Um, very different environments, um, similar care. And then I went to the quality and education um, compliance department the last several years in the position now of staff development. Um, the seed for me for hospice care really came many years ago. I was a nursing student and back in you know, 30 years ago, they really didn't do much about teaching, at least in my curriculum of end of life. Um, and so I had a cousin a couple years younger than me who was diagnosed with brain tumor glioblastoma. And I was able to witness um, hospice care in her home. And that really was where the seed was planted for me. I didn't think too much about it until um, later in life. I think we each get to a season in life where um, we're guided. And I felt guided back a calling into hospice care. And as I learned more about hospice care, um, I was able to reflect back on some other close family members' deaths, um, a grandfather, and uh, he had died three years before my cousin did. So my cousin had hospice care, and my grandfather was in the intensive care. And it was such a stark change of environment, um, support, and that is really what solidified for me that hospice is where I wanted to work. And that's really what brought me into hospice care. Um, one of the things George had mentioned is like for us to tell you kind of like a day um, in the life of a hospice nurse. I know I had pre, you know, conceptions of what that is, but um, it's basically us just meeting with, um, well, first of all, the criteria is you have to have, um, I don't know how to say it, Molly, like a life expectancy of six months or less. So if you have a terminal diagnosis, we'll just use cancer, or, um, and you have a life expectancy of six months or less, then that qualifies you for hospice. So a lot of our patients um, live for two years. I mean, not a lot, but some of our patients live for years after we have hospice, um, after we come on board, and some live for two hours. So it's just kind of like we try and get patients as soon as we can because we do help with a lot of symptom management and care, and we have social workers and chaplains, volunteers, um, the nurses, the doctors. I mean, there's a whole team of us that kind of go on board and help, help meet the patient wherever they are. Um, 
So um, a typical day would be um, a nurse case manager would make visits in the home, whether it be in their personal home, in an assisted living, in long-term care, maybe they live with a relative, um, we make visits to motels, we, you know, wherever the patient lives, that's where we meet them at. Um, so we um, just coordinate their care as far as what medications they're on. We take care of symptom management issues. We provide, um, the chaplain may be called in to do spiritual support. And although a lot of our patients are Christians and um, there are some that are not, so we have to meet them where they are. And um, they just find the chaplain that we have are very good at meeting people where they are. Um, and we might bring in other holy people of their belief to kind of help with that passing. Um, we also have social workers that can help with social issues. So there's a, and we have home health aides. Um, they are like the heart of our company, I feel like, because they help give baths and take care of patients in their home um, and in the nursing homes. So we just go and kind of help, like I said, meet with their needs, um, advocate for them, um, advocate for the patient, because sometimes families and patients have two you know, different ideas of what, how they want their passing to be or what that looks like. So our main priority is always the patient if they're alert and oriented and kind of what, you know, so we might try and meet with them personally, you know, without their families, but a lot of times it's, it's, it's a group of families and friends and caregivers and, um, and then we come back and kind of coordinate with our team and um, then provide that care. That's kind of just a real general overview there. Uh, to that, but would you add anything to that, Molly? Um, just as Amy mentioned, the six month is uh, the diagnosis we're given as part of the rules to take somebody on the hospice. Um, I'm sure most of us know somebody with a cancer diagnosis or one of those other diagnoses um, that really kind of put a little bit of fear in our hearts um, about the unknown and where that journey is going to take us. So it's not just a matter of certain diagnosis, it's where you are in that trajectory you need to be towards that six months or less. And so there's a lot of review of medical records, the physician is involved, our medical director and physicians are involved in determining that six months or less. And um, you know, we don't have a magic ball, so we don't know exactly when that's six months. And that's where we do end up, we have patients that um, are with us for much longer than six months. Those longer relationships are very um, beneficial in the sense that we can have a more time to develop a relationship with them and the family. Uh, we're not doing a crash course on death 101. We are able to um, build relationships, bring in the other team members, and really help support. Uh, we do a lot of education. Uh, many people don't have that experience of death and the dying, um, dying process. The symptom management, um, that refers to the different physical changes that are going on. Uh, the body is slowing down, the organs are no longer working um, correctly, how they normally have the, the other part of your life. And so we see things such as constipation, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, agitation. There's a lot of those symptoms that may come as a result of the body just slowing down and no longer working normally. Um, and that is what our nurses primarily do. We're um, very responsible for good assessments in the home, um, calling and collaborating with the physicians and medical team to report those findings, medications are ordered or whatever intervention needs to happen to restore some of that um, peacefulness 
and manage those symptoms um, and Im improve the quality of life towards end of life. Keep all that calm. Um, so longer time we can have them on service to build those relationships is, all, is very beneficial. Oftentimes family members are not ready to, um, to choose hospice. It's a tough decision. And so we do see some patients where it's two days, maybe even hours. They're only on service with us for a few hours. So again, we do our best to control whatever symptoms are going on, um, promote the peacefulness, and help them with that transition. Um, I was going to mention one thing, too, that I know, uh, just, just so everyone's aware, um, we do have a palliative care program as well that started three years ago. Um, well, four probably now, but, and it is a, it's a transitional program. So if someone was receiving active treatment and um, what we consider, you know, not really a hospice care because they want to continue getting treatments, but yet they do have, you still have a lot of symptoms, um, say with cancer, if you're going through chemotherapy or radiation or um, palliative care is kind of like that bridge between um, act seeking aggressive, what we call aggressive care, and then palliative care or hospice, um, palliative is kind of that bridge. So that, that was, has been a phenomenal um, addition, I think, for hospice as well, because it's hard sometimes to go from active treatment, this is your life, you're, you know, what you feel like you're doing, and then all of a sudden you're stopping everything, and then, you know, like people's, you know, perception of I'm going to go on hospice and just die, you know, but it's, it's much more than that, and so palliative is kind of like that bridge, not that... Not that we were going to bring up palliative, but I just thought, well, that's a good time to bring that up because it is a, it's a softer entrance kind of because you're still getting treatment, but you're having your symptoms really managed so that you're comfortable. Um, one of the things that is about our Christian faith, um, and Molly and I kind of talked about this before because our Christian faith for us is really embedded in us, so I'm sure it comes across in the care that we provide. Um, and although we try and be, you know, I guess, selective in what we say. We still try to come from a part of, of, of our heart where, that we know of and that we find comfort from. So um, sometimes if it's a different faith or no faith of, at all, um, you do run into some issues of, you know, just, you know, discord in the family or, you know, relationships that have not been good and that, you know, the patient struggles with those. And that's where we have a great team and we... Um, bringing our social workers, our chaplains. And so I feel like I use my Christian faith in just, I don't know, providing compassion and try and um, just understand where people are at and not, and not be judgmental um, and just be kind, you know, because a lot of times patients and families are angry when they come on hospice. They're angry because what's happening to them. Their families are angry because they're losing their loved one. And so, you know, you just have to understand the anger's not at you. You know, it's just at the situation and helping them work through that. We have a great bereavement group, too, that um, helps provide support for them. Um, is that what you say, Molly? Um, well, I just wanted to share one of my routine uh, when I went into patients' homes before I went to each patient. Uh, I prayed. I sat in my car and said a prayer, and that really helped me as far as a Christian because we didn't always go into Christian homes. Um, we, you have to be very non-judgmental. And there were a lot of patients that um, I, I very much internalized my care for them. 
And so I would pray and kind of refocus before I got out of my car so that when I went to that patient's home, they were my only focus. So I would kind of shut off from the six other things I had going on and the phone calls I'm waiting to hear back from the doctor and, and just really be able to reframe it that they were what mattered. And when I walked in that door, I was their nurse. I was a one-on-one, -on -one. I'm their nurse. And I'd pray for the strength to do a good assessment, wisdom, to know what questions to ask as part of that assessment. Um, and some, some were very difficult. Some homes are very difficult to walk into. And um, there's a variety of situations. And so just praying that I could be the hands, um, that I could give care and touch in a comforting way, make good choices, give them the education they needed. So definitely relying a lot on prayer um, before and after visits sometime too. So. so one of the questions was what does it mean to, to help someone who's actively dying? So we use that phrase um, actively dying um, and at that time there's a kind of a care plan that we use that we make more visits, we provide more support. Um, we do have 24-hour care, so somebody can call anytime, any day, any holiday, and get a hold of a nurse, and you know we can make a visit. Um, so actively dying is sometimes it's hard because um, it's the last few days, hours of you know a person's life, and different people die differently, but most of the time it's comfortably, and you know the goal is in their own home, um, and. So we provide that support and medication and just for the family as well. Um, I do want to say one other thing. I don't want to sound like a plug for our hospice, but we, we do have a big, and you all know, a, our, our inpatient facility. So, and that's a huge um, benefit uh, for our hospice. And we use that, we can bring patients into the facility. It's 14 beds, so it's not like people come there I think when I first started hospice, I thought, oh, that's where you go to die. You know, like you go to the, the facility and I thought, dad, that would be it. And, but it's really not. It's more like, like the ER for hospice people, if that, for hospice patients, if that kind of makes sense. So instead of going to the emergency room, say if someone was having extreme pain um, and we in the home, we couldn't quite get on top of it. We've tried different medications and different things. They could come into our hospice facility and it's 24-hour nursing and home health aides and the doctor makes a visit and they, um, we assess their symptoms, get the right medications on board and get them comfortable again and then they go back home. So, or they go back to the nursing home or wherever they are. Um, so that's, when I think of active dying, sometimes I think of that because that's when sometimes there are symptoms kind of get, you know, harder to control and so they might come into our inpatient facility and get managed and then go back home and then the family um, can help take care of them. Um, there's also a real quick, there's a thing called respite care where the patient can come in and stay for five days and to give the families and caregivers kind of a time to rejuvenate themselves because it's very, um, you know, it's very emotional and draining sometimes. And so they come into our facility and we take care of the patient and then they go back home. So that, that was just something else that is a big part of hospice that we have that's really great that, you know, helps patients. I have just wanted to add, when someone's actively dying, to me that's one of the most spiritual parts of the dying process. 
there's that separation from their physical, from their earthly being towards the more spiritual plane. And we see that, and the stage I refer to as actively dying, typically unresponsive or just a little bit responsive. They may be able to speak about um, events or people that I can't see, um, some of those hallucinations. And it always brings me back to just because I can't see it doesn't mean they're at a place that are different plane, they're in a spiritual plane. And perhaps they truly are seeing that person and having conversations with them. And so to me, the actively dying, we're dealing with a lot of the symptom management, again, because the body is just really breaking down and um, organs are not working as they should be, but very appropriate at this time in the life cycle. Um, but along with those symptoms is that separation. So we see our patients towards that active phase of dying, they start withdrawing. Um, they're no longer interested in current events, what's going on, who's president. I mean, they're just, they're not interested in the earthly things. They become really um, inner focused. A lot of them will do a life review or they're just very quiet. And it's because of everything going on in their minds and in their hearts. And that to me is one of the more spiritual times um, of end of life care. Um, as they are making that separation from the physical and the spiritual planes. And, it's kind of joyous in a sense because they are moving towards that, that spiritual, um, the spiritual being they're going to become. That's true. And I think just to add a little on that, when you'll tell someone that you work for hospice and the first thing out of their mouth is always like, oh my gosh, how do you ever do that? Like all the dying all the time and everything. But honestly, it's just so rewarding and fulfilling when you can help some have peaceful passing and you just, have put everything in place so that it still may be very, very upsetting and traumatic, but you know that you've done everything you can to help prepare the family, prepare the patient, and and everybody's you know going to be okay, and you've got a plan in place, and that that to me is is why I keep doing it because it is so rewarding. So that's just it's hard to explain sometimes when it it is mm. it is hard. Um, it's just truly a privilege, and I've had several people ask me over the years if it, you know, isn't any depressing job, um, and it really isn't because of how rewarding it is, and it's difficult, it's emotional, um, there's times when, you know, you look back and should I have done something differently, could I have done something more for that person, um, I think we always have those, but generally most of our patients do pass peacefully under the goals that they had for themselves for their care. You know, they didn't want to go back to the hospital. They wanted to stay home and we're achieving that. Um, perhaps there is some forgiveness that needs to happen within the family, within their own relationships. And we have a social worker and chaplain. We pull in those others and um, perhaps our team can facilitate those conversations so that there is some resolution that all benefits the grief, um, the grieving process. And it's truly beneficial to the, the surviving family as they work through their own grief and the bereavement process afterwards, if we're able to help them reach the, the resolutions that they needed. Um, and that if, if it's a peaceful death, I mean, that is their last memory of their last one is how that time went. So it's very important that our staff are able to um, help achieve those goals as much as we can. Mm -hmm. That's what you remember moving forward and is how comfortable was your loved one and um, did they seem peaceful? Was it a good death? We use that term a lot too in hospice and that's our goal is a good death. Mm -hmm. And I guess kind of lastly or um, 
there is a misconception as well that you have to be a do not resuscitate to be on hospice. I mean, I thought that's what it was when I started, but um, you actually can be a full code while you're on hospice, which um, is just it's just some education, and it, that again is where we meet patients where they are, and um, so that that's just something that I thought was unique. And the other thing, um, if you're on hospice, sometimes it's it's just an acute event that you're going through. It's maybe you're in kidney failure because of something, and um, you come on to hospice and say you start getting better. We do have some patients that actually get better when they're on hospice and because then they would not meet the criteria anymore and maybe their, you know, their kidney function returned and um, their life expectancy is now better than they go off of hospice. We call it graduating off of hospice, um, which, is, um, which happens too. And then later on, you can come back on hospice um, when you are ready. Um, I thought that was a really great thing that hospice does that, you know, you can, and there's no limit or number, you know, that you can do that. But um, that's another thing I would like people to know that, you know, it's not like you're locked in and, you know, that's where we work with you again and kind of help. I hope you are enjoying this week's Sunday morning Bible group. For more information, you can head over to stpeterscolumbus.org. There, you will find more faith content and you can support this ministry. And don't forget, if you are looking for that local church and you live in Columbus, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. Now, back to the Sunday Morning Bible Group. As we start taking some questions you have, let me just again start off. Hospice does not help people die faster. There's no little white pill you're going to get when you come onto service. And we've been asked that. A family will sign up a patient to be admitted and they typically think they're going to first go to the inpatient facility, which Amy mentioned, um, that if you sign up for hospice, that's where you go. And then oftentimes they may come in there and say, when are you giving dad the little white pill? We don't do that. Um, there is no little white pill. So. And in past generations, uh, more people died at home. You know, it was a common thing to have grandma and grandpa living with you until they died and, and, and families were used to that. We got to a period where it always happened in, in a hospital away and it kind of distanced the family. Hospice allows the family to be part of that. And sometimes it allows a healing. Sometimes it allows that person to actually be more comfortable because they're watching those pain management things. And so as we're taking questions, uh, we're not questioning the, the, the role of hospice. Um, pastors are gonna be here in a couple of weeks and they'll talk about end of life decisions because it's not an easy thing. Um, sometimes uh, you might want to choose to take the medical procedure. Sometimes you allow the process of death to happen. But as we take questions for uh, Molly and Amy, uh, just maybe about their job or some of the things they've seen. Anybody have questions? Hey, George. Another way of saying that, hospice is not assisted suicide, yeah, Very good. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It is not assisted suicide. Because there are, I think there's, there may be some denominations, maybe some churches that may be Right, and there are some right-to-life organizations that have protested against hospice because they, uh, they say that they speed death. They do not speed oh, no. death. They allow the process of death to continue. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think there's... Um, oh, go ahead. No. 
It does happen. Uh, we have been full before. We have contracts with other uh, medical facilities, uh, CRH, Columbus Regional. Um, we can place patients um, that meet criteria in facilities such as that to provide the care. We have rules though, for that. So, um, so there are conditions that have to be met in order to provide that type of care. Um, we're just not going to put somebody up in a hotel just to have a room to go to. So we'd have to ensure that we have the 24-hour care. But that does happen sometimes. Yeah, that's a good question. One of the levels of care we have is um, continuous care. So we can also, um, it's where the patient, some of the pediatric patients are more about staying in their home. They don't want to come to the facility or, of course, the families don't want to bring them there. But um, and we stay in the home a certain hours per day and we kind of continuously care for them and then another nurse will come and care for them so that they have to come into the facility. And we have patients that are hour and a half away, like we have all of southern Indiana, so some of them don't want to have their loved one come up to Columbus either where they can't visit them or it's difficult on them to come visit. So we, like Molly said, have contracts with um, other nursing facilities or hospitals, and so they can go there to be closer to their home. Mother, that's a good question. Yeah. We have staff members they can meet for information sessions, and so we would certainly offer that as education. Um, sometimes you don't always get everybody on board in the family, so we look at the hierarchy of advanced directives, who do they have as a um, healthcare representative. If any of that paperwork has been done, that will certainly give us guidance on who we need to follow up with, who's gonna be the decision maker. That's a good question, too, because we have a large population of um, Alzheimer's, dementia, that kind of thing, where, and families don't always agree. And I think Molly's right, it's just educating them. Um, sometimes it takes time. Um, it, it's just, just talking and communicating and... So each individual person, either if you're not married or if, if you have to with your wife, to know what your life, or I guess uh, your, your wishes are for, you know, your certain circumstances that didn't apply. <laughs> That sounds like almost a very specific family, personal situation you're in, is that it can be very individualized, and so we do have different people in the office to help navigate the more complicated. Well, I guess what I'm saying is how important have you, in your experiences, the people that are organized in that, mm -hmm. how, how much easier is that for times. Oh, very. Oh, very. And I mean, yeah, it's just, if as a patient I can put down what my wishes are, then it makes it so much easier for hospice to follow those wishes. Um, now, do you see that family respects living will? If it's written down that, that you know, my loved one said, this is what I wish? I think so. Um, I think they do, and I think it also takes pressure off of the family members of making those hard decisions. Like as a daughter with my dad, like, you know, deciding whether or not to seek aggressive care because he had said he did not want that. That it just gave me peace that I was doing what he wanted and not what I wanted, and um, it provides just a, yeah, 
Don't you think? Well, we do have situations where not everybody is on board. Even if you have all the legal paperwork and you're still signing them up to hospice because that's what their wish was and they qualify, and you may have a son or a daughter, another family member who um, is very still against it. And um, that's when we, we offer the support and the education, but there are times we can't necessarily make that person be accepting of hospice and in the life. Um, it's a shame, but there are those situations that happen. Um, as far as having paperwork together, I think that's the greatest gift any of us can give our families. Um, we prepare and plan for almost everything else in our lives. You're going to have a baby. You're going to have a. You're going to pick out names in a nursery, and you're doing all this planning. And then you start looking at schools. We first came to St. Peter's. We looked at schools in, in town and decided to send our children here. And we plan everything. We research everything, but we don't do a very good job. I think as a society about death, we don't have those forms in place. We aren't having the conversations. Uh, my own mother and I've been in hospice 15 years. I asked her several times to let me know her wishes. And she just says, oh, Molly, that's morbid. And she giggles and she goes on. So I don't know my mom's wishes. She does not want to discuss that with me, but I've tried. So I think that's just the, the greatest gift. It doesn't matter your age. Um, you can be diagnosed with cancer any time. You can, you, know, you can have a life-limiting diagnosis. Um, it's not just the elderly. And Amy alluded, we take on pediatrics. We're one of the only hospices that do that in the area. And so. Um, that's a great gift you can give your family. Have those conversations, get those legal forms together, but you may not have everybody uh, on the same sheet of music, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. And well, we try question. to support that. Well, last question, then we're gonna have to wrap up this part of it. Okay. I was just gonna say thank you. It's been 30 years that I had hospice for my father and it really helped that process. But my question is, we were talking about having the paperwork in place, basically a living will. Um, our social workers, yes, can help and assist with that. Um, you can, and then there are some other like lawyers in town, that type of thing too, but we do offer. So if somebody comes on the service, um, we can help facilitate that. Getting those forms together. Mm -hmm. Good question. Thank you for having Thanks, us ladies. and letting us speak. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> In light of that, as you're making those end-of-life decisions, it's great to talk to pastors as well as to the medical people. Um, one of the things with the living will, and we're, and we're talking about this in our connect groups, funeral planning, how are we witnessing our faith? You know, your living will can be a witness of your trust in God. I want God to be able to decide when the time is over, not a machine. You know, but talk to a pastor. It's not an easy decision. There's a lot of information that needs to go into that whole thing. Again, we don't, we don't speed our death. We would say that that is a sin, to speed our death. But we can allow the process of death to take over because we know where we're going, right? We know where we're going. I have one story I'm just going to share quick. Um, I don't want to rain on their parade, but um, when early on when I was here, uh, there was, uh, Pastor Tyke was on vacation, and I don't remember why there wasn't another pastor, but I was the default pastoral care for the week, and somebody called the office, and it got routed to me. Uh, my dad is dying of cancer. He wants somebody to come pray that he dies. 
And all right, I've never experienced this before. So I did interrupt Mark on his vacation. Mark, tell me, how do I pray that, that, some, that God takes somebody to, you know, God kills somebody, basically. God, you know, ends the life there. Mark says, you, you, you can say, Lord, we trust in your will. So-and-so is ready. Take him when you are ready for him. And so I did that. And I was out there two, three weeks, a couple times a week. You know, Lord, so-and-so is ready to die. Um, you know, if you've got something else for him to do here, please make it evident to him. But take him home soon and take him out of this pain. He loves you um, and his family's ready for him to go. It was three or four weeks and it's like, well, is God answering my prayer? And, and the answer is yes, God always answers prayers. His, his answer was, wait, at that man's funeral, his daughter came up to me and said, you know, we, he wanted to die right away, but by living four more weeks, every one of the grandkids got to come and visit him and he got to share Jesus. We never know why God puts us in situations. It may be painful for us. It may be extended. Uh, we're praying for, for healing. We're praying for comfort. But God can use those moments. And so, um, again, it's not an easy thing. We're talking about some stuff that's really close. And some of you, um, it's, it's really, it, it's been immediate. Uh, God does amazing things, even in our pain. So we're going to look at a Bible passage that's going to look at this. The story of Jairus and his daughter um, coming to Jesus. Here's, let's re read this together. I printed it out for you on your papers on the table if you want to write notes. I love notes on the right side. I'm going to add some things as we go along. Uh, but I think this talks about the deeper issue of death and dying. All right. Uh, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. They all like Jesus. Here he comes. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, a Jew, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. He's turning to Jesus in his pain. My daughter's dying. We all as parents know how much we want the best for our kids. As Jesus was on his way, the crowd almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. This would have, for that woman, excluded her from society. By Jewish law, she could not come into the temple. By Jewish law, she was unclean. In terms of her own existence, it would have been painful and miserable. Right? She comes to Jesus, but she's so humble. What does she do? She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Now everyone's going to go, all right, wait, wait a minute, what happens next? Who touched me, Jesus asked. That's a rhetorical question. All right? That is a rhetorical question Jesus knew. All right? Jesus knew, but he wanted to give this woman the opportunity that he could recognize her as a person. Instead of saying, you, you unclean woman, get away from me. All right. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touch me. I know that power has gone out for me. All right. He knows. He does know who it was, too. I guarantee it. All right. Then the woman, came, woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed. All right. Finally, she goes, all right, he's going to catch me. I might as well come up there. She came trembling and fell at his feet. She's probably wondering, is he going to call me out? But what does he say? In the presence of the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He shared love. He took time out. He was busy. He was going somewhere. Took time out. Showed care for her. Showed care for her body, but also for her 
emotions and her spiritual welfare. All right? Go in peace, the shalom there. If you look at the word shalom, it's more than just, all right, have a peaceful life. It's more about the wellness, the well-being. Jesus said, you have been healed. Go in peace. I recognize you. You're important to God. I took time out to help you realize you are important. Jesus cares. All right, then, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, James, and John, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. Can you stop crying if you're sad? <laughs> Jesus is just trying to get their attention, all right? He knows that they're still sad. They're going to keep crying. He doesn't, he doesn't think they have to stop crying for that. But he wants to draw their attention. What is it? She is not dead, but asleep. Did Jesus not know she was dead? Yeah, he knew she was dead. But Jesus knows the ultimate truth. He has the power of life or death, all right? For God, death is a sleep that will end in eternal life with him. All right, so they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Wait a minute. Jesus, he just raised her, says give her something to eat. He's concerned about the whole body, right? It's not just, all right, I'm done, I'm out of here. Make sure you're caring for her. It's a wholeness. God is concerned with our whole being. All right, give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anybody what had happened. Well, I'm not going to get into that last part because I want to go, why wouldn't he want everyone to tell? We're going to discuss that later on if we have time in class. But it's something for you to think about. Sometimes Jesus says, don't tell. And other times he says, do tell. All right. Um, Pastor Adam refers to uh, the legion. When Jesus cast out legion, Jesus says to the man that's cured of his demons, tell your whole neighborhood what's happened. Here he says to these parents, don't say what happened. All right? If you look in, he's got a reason for it. That's something I'm just going to challenge you to dig for that. All right, what, what are we learning from this lesson? All right? As we talk to hospice, hospice is concerned about the whole person. Of course, they're working with their physical being, but they have the social workers. They have the chaplains because it's a whole being. We are not just our bodies. If there's one thing that we want you to learn through this whole series, each person is a body and a soul, and God's concerned about all of us, all right? He can heal sickness, and sometimes he does miraculously. Some of those people on hospice come off because they've been healed. Some of them are healed by being taken to heaven, all right? God is the one that's in charge. He knows what he's doing. Uh, when, when they brought the man who was blind from, from birth to Jesus, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And what did Jesus say? It's to glorify God. All right, it's to show the power of God. God's got a reason. He can heal sickness, and he does bring resurrection. He can raise people on earth. Why doesn't he do it now? Because too often we wouldn't believe it first as, as, as Americans, right? But also because there's a better thing waiting. If you think about dying, wouldn't you rather be in heaven with Jesus forever than being here on earth? All right. And so I've always wondered that. You know, Lazarus, he comes back to life when Jesus raises him. Jesus, why don't you leave me there? I got to deal with my two sisters now for the rest of my life. No, uh, that was a joke. <laughs> I have two sisters I have to deal with. 
and I love them. I love them. All right, next thing. It's not just about the body, but it's also the emotions. All right, in this case, you know, he, he brings in those mom and dad. The mom and dad are concerned. Come on in with me. He wants them to see the love. Earlier on, when he had the raising of the widow's son, um, you know, again, he cared for the mother. When he heals, when he raises Lazarus, what did he do? He comes up. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus, but he cries. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. This one kids love to memorize, right? <laughs> Jesus wept. He wept because he cares about how people feel. As you're going through end-of-life situations, as you're dealing with loved ones that are dying, he cares. And you always have that opportunity to bring to him in prayer your deepest thoughts. You can rage at God, you can question God in prayer, but talk to him because he wants to hear. Then he speaks back to us through his word and open up the book of Psalms. It just says all the things, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. You're comforting me. You're there beside me taking care of me all through the way. All right? Share it with God. All right? And then the whole being, Jesus cares about our wellness. All right? Jesus does care about our bodies. As we're talking through this whole series, our bodies are important. They're a creation from God that we're to use while we're on earth. They're a creation from God that will be recreated at the judgment day. And we'll get to be with those resurrected bodies forever. Hey, I hope that you enjoyed this Sunday morning Bible group. If you did, be sure to share it and subscribe so we can get you more faith content when it's available. And I want to give a shout out to all people who call St. Peter's home. It is through you that we are able to connect people to Jesus for the first time and keep people connected for a lifetime. We hope to see you next time.